Welcome to VSB After the Bell. I'm your host, Gianna Chow. VSB, otherwise known as the Vancouver School Board, is located on the ancestral and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Skahumish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. The district is among the most diverse school systems in Canada, with an annual enrollment of just under 50,000 students from kindergarten to grade 12 and adult education students. Welcome back to VSB After the Bell. With Thanksgiving being in October, the season of gratitude is upon us. VSB acknowledges and shares appreciation for the dedication of more than 50 community partners who work to make schools more welcoming, inclusive, safe, and vibrant learning environments. Support ranges from providing essential services such as food programs to arts and extracurricular activities, as well as donations to families in need. Joining us today are representatives from two esteemed organizations, Jillian Shaw, Board of Directors from Vancouver Sun Children's Fund Society, the Adopt-A-School Program, and Selma Ismail, Youth Settlement Counselor from the South Vancouver Neighborhood House. They're here to discuss their invaluable roles in empowering our students and enhancing their education experiences. Welcome, Jillian, and welcome, Selma. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, so perhaps to listeners, you know, you're, you're not really part of the school system. So could you please introduce yourself and the organization that you represent? Uh, so my name is Thelma Ismail. I'm the Youth Settlement Counselor at an organization called the South Vancouver Neighborhood House. Uh, the South Vancouver Neighborhood House is one of eight neighborhood houses that are located in the Lower Mainland. Um, and there's part of the bigger organization called the Association of Neighborhood Houses of BC. Um, so we have been in South Vancouver since 1977, uh, running programs and providing social services for um, families that live in South Vancouver. And in 2004, we started our collaboration with the Vancouver School Board, and it's been going well and um, thriving ever since. <laughs> and uh, how about you, Jillian? Well, my name is Jillian, Jillian Shaw. I'm on the board of the Vancouver Sun Children's Fund, which is a, a standalone charity that has been running um, as long as the Vancouver Sun has been, which in some incarnation or other, and it's most recent under this name, it's, it was started in 1981. And we have taken on um, projects along that time in response to community need with the over arching goal always to be helping children and youth in our community. So over 40 years in, in Vancouver and, and helping the community out. Um, so how did, did each of your organizations begin your partnership with, with uh, VSB? Maybe we'll start with Adopt-A-School. Well, at Adopt-A-School, um, the people on the board, it, because it was run by a newspaper, we were all journalists and we were sitting around a table just as we're sitting today in this podcast studio. And we were talking about a letter that was written by a teacher at Seymour Elementary, Carrie Gelson. This was in 2011. She wrote a letter, I think that was meant for family and friends. And it just expressed what she was seeing in her classroom her worries and her frustrations. And she talked about um, in some classrooms, you know, the kids had everything or they had a pack that, you know, could help provide the extras or their parents could fill in. And in her classroom, 
some of the most, most basic needs weren't being met. Like kids were coming to school. This was this time of year. So it's getting cold. It was rainy. Kids were coming to school with holes in their shoes. They had um, bites from bed bugs. The, the reality that, that Carrie saw in her classroom was one that was very different from some of her friends who were teachers. And that we published that as a story in the Vancouver Sun. And as a result, um, a lot of very generous donors, our, our community is a very generous community, and people went straight to Seymour and they wrote checks and they brought clothes and they brought toys. In our newsroom, which was down in downtown Vancouver, our newsroom started to fill up with coats and toys and people saying, we want to help Seymour. So the Vancouver Sun Children's Fund board at the time said, uh, and well, okay, we're going to, you know, there's, there's obviously a need here that we haven't, we haven't recognized. Um, and it's children just down the street from us. We don't have to go to another country to, to find children who are going hungry. They're right down the street from us. So as a result, that was what launched the Vancouver Sun Children's Fund Adopt a School Initiative. Um, but it was all thanks to donors. And Seymour was 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 the first school we helped. And we very quickly found that what was happening at Seymour was not only reflected in other schools and other inner city schools around the province, but also there were there were children in need in all kinds of areas. Like as Selma probably knows from her community, you might have people living, um, you know, with everything and they, you know, mm -hmm. financially very secure living down the street or, you know, there, there could be a child in a class who, who didn't get breakfast sitting alongside um, kids who, who, mm -hmm. who don't suffer that kind of hardship. And so what we've done in the years since we've been running Adopt-A-School is try to reach, reach these children and youth. And the way we do it is thanks to organizations like the Vancouver School Board, um, which come to us, the teachers and administrators and staff, come to us and tell us what's happening and what they need. And we try to help. Well, speaking of the supports that you provide, um, could you let listeners know what does the Adopt-A-School program provide to VSB students? Our, sort of at top of our pillars, we have four pillars. And it, the top of that is food and basic necessities. Because if kids are hungry, they, they can't learn. We also recognize this, wasn't, this shouldn't be the job for teachers and principals. They shouldn't, have, you know, they, they're there to teach kids. And, but if, if kids have all these issues, like they're coming to school cold and wet, they don't have enough to eat, um, that impedes their learning. So that is a top priority for us. And we prioritize those, those applications. And they are the lion's share of our applications by a long shot. Um, but we also recognize um, other needs like, like trying to level the playing field. Mm -hmm. So we do things like mentorship, sports, um, technology, and literacy, and try to step in when we can. And again, this is through the generosity of donors. Um, sometimes we can do things like we are involved in a project right now with the Vancouver School Board a technology project that was launched by one of our donors who came to us and said, I would like to, you know, I, I recognize that there's need for technology in the schools and there's not enough money and budgets to meet it. And I would like to do something about that. So to, 
to date, they've raised, and this is through a donor, a single donor, and their friends, um, they've raised close to half a million dollars that is going to put technology into into Vancouver schools. Ever since COVID occurred, the need for technology definitely seems more apparent. Um, You know, we relied not only on our mobile phones, but our computers and It's the way of life in the future. And as we set up these students for success and they go into their adulthood, they need to learn how to uh, use these tools. Um, And now turning to the South Vancouver Neighborhood House, how has your organization been collaborating with VSB? Um, So one of the main or one of the most important things for uh, preteens and youth as they get older Um, and develop is the importance of having after-school activities. So these activities are meant for them to form social connections, um, to spend time in a meaningful way, to develop leadership skills, um, and for them to really like thrive um, outside of their school setting and during their lunch period. So we run a variety of different programs in the schools and also after school and on the weekend. So we run preteen after school programs that are run by youth programmers who are staff at the neighborhood house, but are also supported by youth volunteers who come from neighboring high schools to act as mentors to these preteens and also for them to develop leadership skills, patience, understanding how to work with other people, collaboration, um, and things like that. Uh, we also have um, gender equity programs and newcomer youth support programs and sustainability programs. Um, and these take place both on the VSB school sites after school. Um, and they also take place at our neighborhood house, which is located on 49th Avenue and Victoria Drive. Uh, we also have cross referrals from VSB for SVNH. Um, so we also have programs that take place on the weekend. Uh, We really want to make sure that these programs are accessible for our families and our youth and our preteens. So we try to make them as um, equitable as possible. Um, And that means we have it after school. We have it also on the weekend. That way we have uh, the largest number of youth and preteens that are able to join as possible. We also divide our programs based based on uh, demographic. So understanding that newcomer youth have specific needs when it comes to accessing supports. So we have specialized programs for newcomer youth um, and then as well as for preteens. Yeah, um, I know that uh, neighborhood houses are definitely a staple in several different communities throughout Vancouver um, and the lower mainland, really. Um, So those programs are invaluable to parents, especially working parents, when they're not able to pick up their children at three o'clock or before school um, and they need to get to work at eight o'clock and school starts at nine o'clock. So having that buffer time, it makes a huge difference for parents. And just like a little bit of my personal experience with the neighborhood house, I'm what they call like a neighborhood house baby. That's like a new term, apparently, uh, which basically means that I have been accessing Uh, neighborhood house resources ever since I was in high school. I was a newcomer to Canada um, uh, when I came in grade eight. Um, And I went to the neighborhood house because mainly I just wanted to make some friends. And my uh, mom kind of like pushed me a little bit to join programs after school. Um, And because it there were other newcomer youth that were present in the programs, I felt like some kind of connection, even though We all come from different places, but just the idea of like settling into a new country, what that means, 
um, how different everybody was from one another, but that difference was like a commonality between all of us. Um, and I really thrived in the neighborhood house and, and the setting and the supports that were there. My father accessed the neighborhood house to get employment support when he was looking for a job. Um, my younger brother joined preteen programs. My sister was a volunteer there. Um, so I accessed the neighborhood house all throughout my high school years. And then I graduated and then I went to university and then I saw that there was a job opening um, during my third year of university and then I applied for it. It was just like a part-time job running a program for newcomer youth to like learn how to cook. Um, and then through that part-time job, I was able to get a full-time job at the neighborhood house. So it's kind of a full circle moment where the leadership skills and kind of like the confidence that I've gained through volunteering and being part of the neighborhood house, feeling like there is an actual true community there and being able to be in that place where now I am facilitating these programs. I'm advocating for newcomer youth. It's it's a very surreal moment. And even though I've been in this position for two years, I still always feel like, oh, this is a very uh, interesting uh, space to be. Um, and I'm very grateful for the neighborhood house. And then that's kind of the experience that I hope that um, other youth who access these services feel that like confidence, that sense of being part of something larger and contributing to their community, whether they've been living in that community all of their life or they just got here. Um, but the neighborhood house is just a safe space for everybody to just feel involved, to access services that they need, the services that they want, um, and just to be there for community. That really warms my heart <laughs> to like hear about this full circle moment. And a neighborhood house is more than just somewhere that you drop off your child or a program. You know, it's you built your community. You found your community. It was so much more. You found your friends, your family used the services there, and now you're working there. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, first, I love that story as well. And it's particularly, I, it just it just reminds me, and even having a Tillman and I having a conversation before we sat down for this podcast and sharing I, thoughts about what we do and, and also even identifying ways that we could, we could help. And it just um, makes me realize every day that we're part of a community and, and all kind of pulling in the same direction. And it takes a lot to, um, to really affect some change. And, mm -hmm. I, I, and I love that, I love story, that story because yeah. you're a story of affecting yeah. that change yourself. And so. you feel like, like there, because in this world today, there's a lot of tragic news. And this is really warming to hear that, you know, a neighborhood house baby has thrived. Yeah. And some through some of, you know, we don't actually go out and, you know, make sandwiches and serve breakfast ourselves. So we rely on, you know, as we rely on the school, school board, we also rely on there's some Vancouver schools where the neighbor, the local neighborhood house is providing the meal and we provide the funding for that. So it it all is intertwined. You don't have to look very deep to see how, you know, how these roots go and they're, they're intertwined. Um, so with uh, these variety of services, how do you both identify what areas uh, of needs uh, that students uh, require and how do you support that? For Vancouver, in, in, since we started in 2011 with Adopt a School, we've raised more than 11 no more than twelve million dollars, I think now that it's gone that has gone to schools throughout the province. But our focus is on British Columbia schools. Of that, um, a little over three and a quarter million has gone to Vancouver 
schools. Um, and that only represents a bit of a fraction of what actually goes into schools from what we do, because um, just as in the early days with Seymour, people walked up to the front desk and handed you know, a check over to help because they read it in the newspaper, they're still doing that. And I met a donor the other day who who is um, who is our donor and has come, you know, uh, to come to us. But also, I said, how did you come to how did you come to adopt a school or what was your interest in what we're doing? And he said, since I read that story in the um, the first story, Carrie Gelson's story at Van- at Seymour School, um, we've been helping that school. So. There are all kinds of there are all kinds of connections that we don't even know about. So it goes beyond money. Like we 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 send money, we take applications, and we send money to help feed kids, clothe them, fund field trips for kids other who otherwise wouldn't be allowed to go, or all these kinds of things. Um, but really, that is only a fraction. We have we have food companies that deliver. You know, breakfast sandwiches. We have companies that deliver fresh fruit and vegetables, and that doesn't show on our on our balance sheet, but it's all contributing to um, our goal. And they're one of the ways we, well, the only way really that we we tell our tell the story of what we're doing is through stories in the newspaper. So donors step forward when they read, and often we find people don't realize that. Maybe they're children in their own neighborhood that need help. And I think as journalists, we feel a responsibility to shed light on those stories, um, just as we learned that there were children in our neighborhoods that needed help. We're trying to let people know, um, because once they know, people are, people are very generous um, and, and step forward. So that, and, and the way... You did ask about how we, we take applications, um, and the applications come from, we learn about the needs from everybody, from uh, assistants in the classroom, teachers, principals, administrators, people who are working with kids. We rely on them mm-hmm. to tell us about the need, and we also go and visit the schools. So we don't sort of sit back in an office. We don't even have an office, but <laughs> if we did, we wouldn't be sitting in it. We, we go out to the schools. We go out to the community centers. Um, we go talk to the people who are actually delivering these services and seeing firsthand what the need mm-hmm. is. And we meet them, and, then, and we meet a lot of the people we're helping. And, and that helps to inform our, you know, and, and also helps to encourage us at times of the year like now when we are facing $2 million in applications that have just, we have more than 150 applications that have um, come across our desk just this fall. Um, and that's quite daunting because we're not, a big, we're not a big charity. We don't have a marketing department. We don't have any overhead, actually. Our, our, our little uh, overhead is actually paid through an endowment that very generous early donors had set up. Um, and so that covers our costs so that a hundred percent of every donation that comes in goes to help children and youth. Uh, well, you know, I, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of good people in the community and the Vancouver sun has a far reach. It's been a staple, uh, in Vancouver. It's been here for decades, 
for a very long time. And uh, whenever we see a story in the sun, it's it's a credible source, right? It's uh, you have the noise of fake news, alternative news these days, and Vancouver Sun is still very much seen as the North Star for journalism. So, um, you know, you have this great platform and you're able to reach a mass audience and then find the good people in the community and give back to to students in need at, at the Vancouver School Board. So very, very grateful for that. Um, how about how about you, Salma? How do you find um, the areas of student needs that you need to support? Um, so there's um, a bunch of different ways where we try to do a needs assessment to see like what the preteens and the youth really need at this moment because the trends change over time and the needs change frequently. So we try um, as much as we can to be able to address them. So one of the main ways that we do that is knowledge exchange through um, the settlement workers that work in the schools to support youth and their families, um, the community school team coordinators, school principals, and ELL department heads. Uh, speaking specifically for newcomer youth, for example, we have something called a learning club uh, for youth to get access to homework support after school uh, with um, university volunteers or college level volunteers. So it's kind of like a mutual benefit where the youth get uh, homework support and then the volunteers gain that experience working with youth. Um, and for example, when we see that there is an influx of um, immigrants or newcomers from certain parts of the world that speak a particular language, um, it's helpful to know that because then we can try to find volunteers who are able to speak that language as well to be able to support them on a more meaningful level. Um, so that's something that we found to be very helpful. Um, we also have youth surveys. So uh, learning directly from the youth, um, what kind of services they're looking for, what kind of volunteer opportunities they're craving, uh, what things they really want to do or things that they need in order to like thrive during their uh, high school time. Um, and then with newcomer youth in particular, I think one of the most important factors to determine their need um, is building trust um, and having a, a, um, kind of like a trustworthy relationship with them. Uh, because sometimes it takes time to open up and to really understand what the needs are. So you just want to know or you want to tell them that you are here and you're here to support. And then with time, hopefully you get to build that trust and that relationship. Um, and then through that, you're able to truly understand the things that they're going through and how you're able to support. But that, of course, takes some time and some patience from both sides. Um, so that's why we try to have our programs in the school to make them or to go to their safe space mm -hmm. and see where they're at in order to support them. Um, and then finally, uh, we also have parents that express what kind of things that they think that their youth uh, would benefit from in the after school program. So um, like what kind of leadership opportunities, if I have had um, parents in the past where they tell me like, um, my youth is very shy and very introverted. So can you find ways to like support them kind of get out of their shell a little bit, embrace their strengths and things like that. Um, so that's also very helpful um, when having different services. And I think when you're working through like a diversity and inclusion framework, we have to like acknowledge that everybody is different and they take their feedback different. And the services that we have have to, we try our best to cater it to the specific needs of each um, youth and preteen. And that's kind of like the philosophy that we like to go by. Um, and yeah, <laughs> lots of lots of opportunities um, to find the areas of support. Uh, I think, you know, if you're already in a neighborhood house, then you have the context to 
your program leader or those that are in the neighborhood staff of the neighborhood house. Um, but for those who perhaps are not there yet, um, they can talk to their principal who can connect them to the right neighborhood house. Um, I know that sometimes there's almost a fear of talking to the principal um, because it's only when you get in trouble. But we are here to really encourage parents to keep your principal, to keep your classroom teacher in the loop proactively. So um, it's it's a it really takes a village to support these children. Um, and it's both at the home life and also at the school life. Uh, so uh, as we heard, lots of services available. So where can uh, parents, where can students find these services? And following up on that question, um, how do you choose which schools receive these supports? So um, based uh, for your first question, uh, we have uh, a building, we have a location. It's um, on Victoria Drive and 49th Avenue. Um, so you can walk in. We have our opening hours from Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, we also have uh, services offered on Saturdays, but it's more limited services from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, and you can go to the South Vancouver Neighborhood House website, and they have all of the contact information for uh, the staff, um, if you don't really know what kind of services and you want to learn more, you can also call the front desk. We have amazing receptionists that are able to um, guide you through the different programs and services that we have and who to call. Um, and in terms of how we choose, um, each neighborhood house has a different catchment. So for South Vancouver, for the high schools at least, it is Killarney Secondary School, John Oliver Secondary School, and David Thompson Secondary School, as well as the accompanying uh, elementary schools. Um, and so the South Vancouver Neighborhood House staff and the community schools team staff kind of determine what are the needs for each school and what programs would be of benefit for those schools. Um, and based on that, we have our services there or offsite at our, um, uh, at our location. Um, and then the reason why we have certain catchments is that we don't want to overlap services. So there's access services that are not being utilized. Um, so we try our best to um, just make sure that the services that we have are accessible to everybody. But you cover um, all of Vancouver with yes, your various with the different neighborhood, neighborhood houses, houses yes. with eight of them, as you mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, you also said community schools team. Mm -hmm. And for families who are not aware, these are district staff members who are resource um, staff. Uh, they're stationed in schools, uh, particularly uh, secondary schools. And then each secondary school, they have uh, dedicated feeder schools or elementary schools. And so you really work directly with VSB staff and the neighborhood house together to determine the supports that are needed. And how about Adopt-A-School? Because really it's not as, you know, there's no storefront. Um, you, you guys are really working behind the scenes. So uh, what, where are you or where can we find your services? And um, how do you choose where to provide those supports? Well, you can find us online at um, vansonkidsfund.ca. Um, and for, um, there are two parts to what we do. For, for donors, uh, there, you know, there's information, a lot of, if you want to find out what schools in your neighborhood or what's going on, that's, we keep our stories run in the Vancouver Sun and, and they're archived on our site. Um, and then for people who are looking for help, 
uh, we encourage applications and we encourage it with a lot of faith that we're going to be able to meet the need for kids going hungry. We haven't had to, you know, say we don't, we can't do that. So um, we encourage applications and they come from all levels uh, from, if, you know, it could be a teacher like a Carrie Gelson working in the classroom and saying, I could use some winter coats or I could use some boots or we need some money for snacks. What we tell people is we're, we're not gatekeepers. You come to us and we'll do the best we can. It's interesting because a teacher or a principal will have great need in schools where there's, there is no meal program. And they'll name some figure that we're going to feed kids breakfast for $2,000 for the year. And I, I know from what we do, I think, I don't think that's quite enough to do what you want to do. And they say, well, we don't want to take away from others. That, that breaks my heart. Even in areas of great need, people are thinking of other people. So we try to deliver this message of don't self-select. And, and we also, by working together, like with the Vancouver School Board, we can put our heads together and make, you know, a little bit of money go a long way. Well, you heard it right here. Um, and anyone can apply as long as they log online. They have to be. This is a little bit of, you know, CRA talk, but they have to be qualified donees. So mm-hmm. if you decide that, you know, you, I, I decide to start cooking just, out of my kitchen right. and making sandwiches, I'm not a qualified donee. We're not in the business, as I said, of making breakfast, making lunch or delivering food. We need to rely on our community partners. So for instance, the VSB um, would be the qualified donee that says, yes, we're going to take this money and it's going to provide breakfast for so many kids or it's going to provide lunch. And the same with a neighborhood house. As, as I mentioned, there's an, a neighborhood house that is making breakfast for kids in a Vancouver school. And we're um, among the funders. I think the chief funder in that. So Jillian, you mentioned donees. Um, to clarify, are you speaking about nonprofit organizations or credible organizations who can uh, make an application to the Vancouver Sun Children's Society? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't um, disperse funds to individuals. We don't take applications from individuals. Uh, they. The applications come from, when we say qualified donees, it's under the Canada Revenue, uh, under Canada Revenue, there are nonprofits and charities that are qualified. And for instance, the Vancouver School Board, all school boards um, are qualified donees, the Association of Neighborhood Houses, and, and, you know, a number of other organizations. So we don't give the money directly to the families or children we're helping, we rely on the schools and the organizations that are helping them to make those applications and to manage the services and deliver the services Mm -hmm. that we're funding. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Um, So we know that sometimes there can be stigma when it comes to asking for additional help, um, especially in communities where Maybe it's seen as you're in the midst of an affluent community and you never know what the circumstances is. Maybe this family just lost their job um, um, and they're still driving a nice car, but, you know, the, the circumstances have changed extremely for them. So th- there is this stigma when it comes to asking for help. How do you address that in your organization? Um, so I think it's really hard to completely ed- like eliminate stigma 
but we try to normalize asking for help and seeking support. Um, and for example, we have a program called Care and Share, which is a dignified way for families to get access to um, donated clothing items for um, clothing items, uh, home appliances, things like that. It's similar to uh, if you were to go to a store, you kind of like look around and see the things that uh, would be beneficial for you and your family to access without having um, it, it's kind of like a shopping experience. So uh, we tried to find um, unique program delivery ways in order to stigmatize, destigmatize um, access to support and services. Uh, for our newcomer populations in particular, we have um, amazing settlement staff that are able to speak a variety of different languages. So for South Van, we have settlement workers that can speak in Arabic, Punjabi, Hindi, Bangla, Farsi and Dari, Mandarin, Cantonese, Tagalog, Ukrainian, and Russian and Korean. So that way, um, our community members have an opportunity to speak more candidly and openly if they prefer to speak in their native language to feel more heard. Um, and also d delivering these programs with um, certain languages is also uh, beneficial for them to see and learn um, about social services and accessing these resources. Many newcomer families come from countries where social services either don't exist or they're meant for people uh, living in extreme poverty. And they always have that mindset of, I don't really need it. There's someone else that would might need it more. So we have a lot of that mentality, even amongst our youth, which is a very beautiful sentiment to have. But uh, we also want to encourage them that if this is something that you need, if this will make your life easier, this is a resource for you to use and it's meant for you. Um, and it's again, it comes back to building that relationship and building trust between you as a community um, partner um, to these youth. And that's why working with the VSB staff is also really important uh, because the VSB staff are trusted people for a lot of the families. Um, so by bridging that gap between community service versus school service, uh, we're able to support more families because it comes from someone that they trust. Yeah, you're, you're so right about um, services being offered, social services being offered in other countries. I'm first generation immigrant here and I remember when my mom was raising me, um, you know, she she's a single parent and uh, she didn't accept any help. One, there was a language barrier. So having those different uh, services being or being able to communicate with someone in their mother tongue really helps and makes them feel safe. Um, but also there was kind of the sense of pride of if I take any government, quote unquote, government services. So that could be from a nonprofit. Um, it's seen as I'm not capable enough. Right. So um, letting listeners know that uh, if you need help, like these services are here to help you. It doesn't uh, there's no stigma to it. It's really here to set you up for success um, as you are in, in a new foreign country. And there are different uh, rules and regulations and, and the social environment and the way we do things. Um, so these initiatives un undoubtedly demonstrate the commitment of our community partners to fostering a nurturing environment for our students. Before we conclude, um, how can community members get involved and support the valuable work that your organizations are doing? So for the South Vancouver Neighborhood House, we have a lot of different volunteer opportunities, whether it be for youth or adults. Um, so in terms of adults, we have a lot of programs 
where we need um, kind of like mentorship and support, um, helping with school subjects. Uh, we have a lot of community events that requires a lot of like manpower and people to be there to support. Um, we also have um, the Care and Share program, which I mentioned earlier. We take donations of um, clothing in good condition, home appliances in good condition, toys in good condition, anything that you yourself would use but no longer need. Uh, we accept those. Um, you can just drop them off at the neighborhood house or at Killarney Community Center on Thursdays, every other Thursday. Um, but all of that information is found on the South Vancouver website. Um, and I think those are the main ways you can also donate as well um, and become a member just to keep updated of the different programs and services that we have, upcoming community events. We have um, more presence in social media now. So if you're on Facebook or on Instagram, we have um, different social medias for the staff members that share uh, the programs that we have and volunteer opportunities that are available. That's good to know that you can just drop it off to either the neighborhood house or um, the uh, Killarney Community Center, especially if you guys have eight neighborhood houses. I know with the weather changing, I just changed over my closet and kind of edited it and found a lot of clothes that I don't need that's barely used. So um, that that's a good resource to know. Um, and how about for, for you, Julian? Well, at the Children's Fund for Adopt-a-School, as I mentioned, we have, we're facing more than $2 million in requests this year. And every year, it, you know, we just don't know how it's going to turn out. And so, of course, we can't, we can't help these children and youth without the donations. Um, we have fundraiser pages set up. So our, if you go to vansonkidsfund.ca, um, and it's just as it sounds, uh, you can find the stories about different schools, but also find about different applications. And what one of the things, a couple of things that we do that set us apart, we, um, as I said, 100% of the donation goes to help children and youth. So if you send us $100, $100 goes to, and to children and youth, whether it's in a meal program or it's, you, you know, whatever, it's funding. Um, and the other thing which we find is really resonated with donors, and it's, it resonated with us, I th probably starting with Seymour School, um, that donors can choose their school. They can choose a particular project. And what we've had is people come to us and, and say, well, I live in this neighborhood. In fact, they, in, there was an after-school group of the homework club um, at Britannia when we started, they were in danger of going out of going under because they didn't have at the time, it was like $5,000 or $10,000 to sustain them. It was very, looks like a small amount of money, but it was the difference between keeping the doors open and closing them. We had somebody who had moved into that neighborhood, read the story, called us and said, I would like to keep that neighborhood. And she wrote a check, delivered it. And it, and it not even, it kept going. And now that Britannia Homework Club is not only surviving, but thriving and doing a little bit of the same as Selma ta talked about at the, um, with what she's doing, where, where students there are getting tutoring support from students who have graduated. So it sometimes just takes a little, somebody priming the pump, like a donor coming forward um, and we have other donors say, I, I live, you know, I went to such and such a school and I would like to help there. We have um, 
we have donors. Like one of the things we found is when we started this, that there was a lot of money. Well, not a lot of money, but there, children in elementary schools were being fed. And you've probably seen this. That, but once you go to high school, you kind of drop off a cliff. It's like, well, you have to pay for the cafeteria. They're food, still right? hungry, yeah. but they're, they don't have any more money to. And often they're trying to juggle jobs or look up after other family members. So we've had really unique situations where like a group of students, a group of students from student council came to us and said, we have volunteers. We'll serve a breakfast. Can you pay for all the food? And so um, we, we, do th- we do that, and, it, and that help comes in many different ways, and our donors um, respond to that. So get in touch with us. We're happy to talk about it. I will also take this opportunity to um, mention that VSB also accepts donations directly. Um, We have a Donate Now button on our website, vsb.bc.ca, and there are several ways to contribute either through technology or, you know, meals. Um, We also have anti-racism initiatives uh, that we accept donations for. Uh, definitely lots of need to go around in, in the community, um, but also we are aware there's a lot of good people out there and, and willing and wanting to make a difference. Thank you both for sharing your insights and your initiatives with us. We truly appreciate the impactful work that you are doing to uplift the school communities. To our listeners, please consider reaching out to these organizations to explore how you can contribute to the growth and well-being of our students. Thank you, everyone. We have a reoccurring segment on the show called Matter of the Month, where we talk about hot topics in the district. For this month, we're delving into an important and sometimes controversial subject, BC's Foundational Skills Assessment. I speak with Helen McGregor, VSB Superintendent, about what is it, why is it important, and what are some common misconceptions about it. Join us as we aim to demystify the FSA and shed light on its significance for students, parents, and educators. Welcome, Helen, and thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you, Gianna. So first off, let's understand what is the Foundation Skills Assessment, or otherwise known as FSA? In British Columbia, the FSA is an annual provincial-wide assessment So all students in grades four and seven write it, and it looks at their academic skills. And it covers areas such as reading, writing, and numeracy. And the primary objective of the assessment is to provide a snapshot of how well students are mastering foundational skills, uh, assisting educators in tailoring teaching methods and curriculum to meet students' needs effectively. So these assessments are completed as part of a student's regular classroom learning right in their classroom. And the FSAs have um, 30 literacy questions and 30 numeracy questions, and also two self-reflection questions. So the booklet that students will see um, will have a choice of literacy themes. They have three literacy written response questions and three numeracy written response questions. And at the end, a self-reflection question. Okay, so really at the end of the day, this is a test that all grades four and grade sevens in the province of BC take um, to see uh, if they are at the level of reading, writing, and numeracy. 
Um, if this assessment is a tool used to help us identify the needs of each student, then why has it been a topic of debate in educational circles? I've heard many advocates questioning its efficacy. Well, there are mis misconceptions about the FSA, and a big one is that it's used solely to rank schools and students. Um, and in reality, the FSA serves as a tool for educators to identify the strengths and weaknesses in the education system and implement necessary changes to enhance the learning experience. But more importantly, um, the results of the FSA can provide really valuable insights for families. Uh, families will receive individual student results uh, and reports. Um, and those reports are shared both with the family, the principal, and the classroom teacher. And those reports give a real comprehensive understanding about a student's progress in literacy, reading, writing, and numeracy, and areas that require additional support. So by understanding the purpose of the FSA and its role in shaping educational practices, families can really actively engage um, with their school about their, their own child's learning journey and working alongside the school to foster academic growth and development. Okay, yeah, because I mean, I, I have heard from several um, even media outlets that have said uh, year after year FSAs are used to rank schools and, you know, uh, many independent schools use it to showcase how great their school is to attract more students. But really, the FSA is a benefit for uh, parents, for students, for families to understand where their child is and if extra supports are needed. Um, it sounds like a, a separate report is sent to the families and to the school uh, so you can see exactly where you are. So it's more about helping the student rather about the school, which uh, seems to have spun into a, a different narrative. Is, is that right? Absolutely. It is. It is really about how is that individual student doing? Um, and uh, we use that in addition to other information at the school level and the classroom level to support the learning. But there are also report cards and, you know, students have them now three times a year. So wouldn't that cover the assessment? Shouldn't that be good enough? That's what the report card is for. Um, why this additional test that's, that only happens in grade four and seven? So I, I want to say that the FSA is just one of many tools um, that are used to assess how a student is doing and their performance. And it doesn't represent the whole complete educational journey of a student. And noting it's only in grade four and seven, so obviously report cards happen in every grade. And teachers use many forms of assessment, including classroom-based evaluations, ongoing feedback. Um, to evaluate how a student is progressing um, in relation to the curriculum. So it's it's one important tool um, in, in collaboration with report cards and other assessments. Okay, so it's additional tool that, that families can use. Um, in late September, you sent an email to all families in the Vancouver School Board um, uh, to children who are uh, taking their FSA, or rather, I should say, to families of children who are taking the FSA. Uh, your letter encouraged them to take it. 
And families then receive contradictory information about FSA from their teachers, where the teachers union discouraged participation. Uh, this was really confusing for parents and we definitely heard from them and they reached out to us. Uh, why is there this contradicting message? Uh, and this seems to happen every year. Uh, why is that the case? You know, we tell families that they need to talk to their teachers, but it's their teachers who are telling us that they shouldn't take it. What should parents really believe here? So I sent a letter for this very reason to be to be clear about what the FSA is and the purpose. So all students in grade four and seven participate in the FSA. The FSA is not an opt in or opt out exercise. Uh, a family can reach to a principal um, and um, ask or have a conversation about an exempt an exemption to writing, um, but that's made in collaboration with principals and vice principals in very few circumstances. And unfortunately, in the past, the assessments have been politicized, and that's what I talked about in the letter to families. And as a result, there are confusing and contradictory details about them. This is not unique to Vancouver. Uh, this is a provincial circumstance. And there is a, a protocol agreement between the BC Teachers Federation and the BC Public Schools Employer Association about sharing information with student families. And that's why teachers share their own view about the FSA. But I want to be very clear, FSAs are not a high stakes assessment. They're not meant to be used to rank students, teachers, or schools. It's about learning. And as a superintendent, I am deeply committed to ensuring we do everything we can to improve learning outcomes for all students across Vancouver. These tests are standardized is provincial wide and they provide very valuable information about how students are doing in Vancouver schools and and important information for parents to know how their their students are doing and as I talked about before, individual classroom teachers can use assessment results as one measure of how their students are doing and where they might need some more support. So as a school district, FSA results are used to help make evidence-informed decisions about where we need to focus resources and supports to enhance student learning. And that is the real important reason as to why I made that communication out to all families this year. So what you're saying here is uh, even though there is contradictory information uh, between us and the Teachers Federation, uh, as an educator, you strongly believe in the FSA and that it is used as a tool to help students and their families and guide them in their learning journey. Absolutely. Thank you, Helen, for being here today to explain what the FSA is and why it's essential to recognize that it plays a pivotal role in enhancing the education system by promoting a comprehensive understanding of its purpose and dispelling common misconceptions. Um, I really do believe that we can work towards leveraging the FSA to its full potential and ultimately fostering a more effective and inclusive learning environment for all students. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. Special thanks to music teacher Mr. Bonnell and Nightingale Elementary students for the original theme song. Episodes will be released monthly. Tune in at the end of the month and don't forget to subscribe to VSB After the Bell.
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy Halloween.